Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom. Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom. It's a very special episode today. We have the biographer of Gardner Fox, Jennifer DeRoss. How are you, Jennifer? Hi, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, it's an absolute pleasure, Jennifer. And can I say on Signal, um, I'm going to say it right now, I don't know if you listen to the show, but like... I carry quite the Garden of Fox obsession ever since I first got into comics. And so we've many times spoken about it. Obviously, firstly, how can we get in touch with him? Well, sadly, he passed away in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. I've brought up, I'm going to say this right now, I've brought up the idea of seances at times. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I feel like he would approve of that. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, exactly. Like all that mystical stuff where people are gathering around the table and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, look, Jennifer, you wrote a fantastic book, Forgotten All Star, um, the biography of Gardner Fox. Now, my first question to you is, first, I want to thank you for a fantastic book and a very easy read, but also very informative, I felt. Thank you. I, I tried to bridge, like, easy to understand, but also, like, keeping it academic because that was that was really his comfort zone, it felt like. You know, he didn't necessarily like fans just gushing mm. nonsensically like so I, I i was trying to to do what he he would have wanted best best guess you know <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely and i want to ask what was the first question i have is what drew you to gardener fox in particular um was it were you a childhood reader of his comics or what was the story I I definitely was reading some uh, Justice League when I was a kid, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, And I I had a love of Golden Age comics from my grandma, so I'm sure I was reading more Gardner Fox than I knew, but I, I don't think that I... Like, mostly through my life, I knew him as, like, the creator of The Flash and, like, the big stuff. Um, I, I did not have... Uh, such an understanding of his importance to not just DC, but comics history in general until I started working on him. Um, So I got into the master's program and uh, the summer before that I had been doing some archival work. Mm. And so I saw that one of the classes offered in that first term was on 19th century archives. And I happened to know or knew that we had the Gardner Fox collection there at U of O. And so I pitched working on that um, to the instructor. She approved it. And I almost immediately hit a wall as far as secondary resources. And the more I worked on it, the more that felt like an injustice, like that that somebody really should write his story and that like he deserves to be much more of a common name, uh, you know, Mm. comparatively to to Stan Lee. Like he's an architect of DC Um, and yet people don't know. And so I, I became rather impassioned and continue to to find opportunities to work on him and and eventually it it turned into a whole book (laughs) that's cool so yeah so it it grew because i was wondering this because when i read the book i was thinking um it's very accessible but it also it it feels like someone who's academic has written it Mm -hmm. like 
mm-hmm. it's a nice mix, you know. And Thank you. Yeah, well, I think it's hard to write, like, how do you, do, like, because normally when I, when I think of academic work, it's rather dry, you know, mm-hmm. and yet you manage to make it light. So that's a really nice sort of, like, mix and so it came out of um, basically university studies, yeah? Is that is that right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, that Wonder Woman chapter, I think, is is the most obvious. That's essentially a reworking of my master's thesis. Wow! How cool <laughs> is that that you got to like you know like let's be let's let, let's be capitalists here. You you got to monetize your master's thesis. All that hard work people put in on the master's thesis. I tell you what, I'm a dummy. I, I got my degree and I got out of there. I wasn't sticking around oh, for extras. You know I what mean, I mean? Whatever works, works. <laughs> like, I just, I, I, I got lucky in a lot of ways. I really, I, and again, I just, I, I continued working on, on one thing. I think there's a, you know, specializing like that helped me, but it mm. doesn't help everybody. And everybody's got a different path. Sure. And the question I have as well, um, you know, this is for my listeners. You know, when you say secondary sources, if I'm remembering, that means stuff that is not his. Is that right? It's like other people writing about him. Is that what that means? Exactly, exactly. So I was reading firsthand sources, so his notes, his scrapbooks, his all of that kind of stuff, wow. and and obviously like the stories that he was writing. Yeah. But finding people who had written about Gardner Fox and his work and his legacy and his contributions and all of that was almost entirely left to introductions to his comics yeah. or articles and fanzines. It, it yeah. really just wasn't a part of the, the, the popular milieu. It's weird because I think your DC geeks, like geeks like out there, know him well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because he's so fundamental, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of people who are reading DC right now might not have any idea, and the wider audience outside of comics would have no idea, you know? Exactly, um, exactly. He really is a forgotten all-star. characters on the big screen in the last two years, and nobody knows that he's the creator. <laughs> wow. So I, I read um, your bio on Amazon, and it was quite fascinating that you grew up without, was it electricity? And so you were reading a lot of stuff as a kid, like... Yes. Yeah, yes. that's cool. Like, so you were off the grid before it was fashionable. Was, yeah, my my parents uh, were not super happy with the way that things were going in right. society, and right. and uh, you know they're they're hippies at heart. Um, we just kind of moved out to the the middle of the woods in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas, really? and we were homesteading it. Um, wow, that's kind of cool. I, I, I loved it. I yeah. mean, obviously, I didn't have as much work. Like, I, I did have to do some work. Like, I was in charge of, like, feeding all the animals, and we did have a lot of animals, sheep included. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I am really happy for that upbringing because it has given me perspectives that I think a lot of people my age don't have. Yeah. Oh, no, I think it's fantastic. Like, I mean, getting back to nature at an early age is a really mm-hmm. good age to be out there as well. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. I mean, compare it to these days, you know, the kids of today, we're always, all, everyone's always on their phones and stuff. You know what I mean? True. And it is 100% tiring at a certain point. Now, a question I have on Gutter Fox. Now, you obviously, you were at a university which had like a ton of his stuff. So did you also talk to uh, his family? I'm assuming he has surviving children or grandchildren. Were they part of the process? 
Absolutely. I would say that the person in his family that was the that, that's alive that was the most help because I do think his daughter his her letters and her commentary on things were really really helpful. Yeah. Um, but uh, the the living family member that I I'm still in contact with actually is uh, Teresa Fox. And uh, so that's Gardner Fox's granddaughter, and she really has taken the taken up the keeping his legacy alive, much yeah. like his daughter did. Um, and in fact, when I reached out to her, because I I, I kept coming across conflicting information uh -huh. about his academic record, and uh, St. John's University, I, I kind of hit a limit there because I didn't have his birth certificate. I'm not a family member. Like I didn't, yeah. I couldn't get any further with that. And so I reached out because she has some research in her background as well. Mm -hmm. And she was able to get me the, the records that I needed. And then while she was doing that, she also recognized that he was not among the notable alumni. And so she took on her own and she got him listed. And, and um, she's now like collecting his comics and is cool. becoming more and more active online. Um, it, it's, it's been really fun to watch. That's also, and I mean, God, he certainly deserves to be in a notable uh, notable. <laughs> alumni of his university. <laughs> the bare minimum. <laughs> like, yeah, like how much more would he need to have done? Like, my God. Um, now, okay, oh, question here, and this is a bit of a silly question, but we're always, well, I'm always doing Gardner Fox, like, impersonations. Did, did you have recordings of his voice? Because I'm imagining a guy like, my dear boy, oh, like that kind of style. Like, is that what he was like? Like, very grandfatherly, that's what I'm thinking. You know, I I have not heard his voice. Um, I I wish I wish there was something like that. I haven't even heard of anything like that. Um, supposedly, the first like official creators uh, panel at what was that the either the second or third Comic Con, depending on what you count. Oh yeah, um, was recorded. Cool. Um, I think by Shell Dorf possibly, but I'm not 100% certain. And the person who owns that estate has not come across anything like that yet. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that one day. <laughs> what, what, what kind of year would that have been? That's in the sixties or before the sixties? Yes. Um, that, uh, be like way back, wouldn't it? Oh God. What was that? 63, 64. Okay. Okay, so when he was writing Justice League, so he was a big deal by that point. Like he was, you know, yes. well and truly a legend. Um, one thing that I found super interesting just researching for this show um, is the amount of stuff that he created. I, I didn't real. I mean, I knew he created a lot, but when you go through the characters, you're mm -hmm. like, oh my god! Like even to the extent of say Batman, or Batman's mm -hmm. utility mm -hmm. belt he created. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. like that is such a it, that is such a major part of Batman. Um, oh yeah, yeah. It, that the gadgets was one hundred percent, and you could see that Gardner Fox was really interested in gadgets with other characters too. But I do wonder what Batman would have looked like if Gardner Fox had gotten a longer run there at the beginning. But I'm really glad you bring that up because I feel like. As much as Bill Finger deserves so much oh. more credit than he's getting still, yeah. I feel like the fan attention on making sure that Bill Finger gets his credit really overshadows Jerry Robinson's contributions and Gardner Fox's contributions. It's true. I mean, my God, what a sad story. Um, yeah. 
the, to Dinah basically, you know, a pauper, and it's like you created Batman. I mean, it's I just. Know. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it, but I, I like you know you know what I think. I mean, look, everyone blames Bob Kane, and the guy mm-hmm. was a prick. But like, I think some of the blame also is at DC. You oh, know, for sure. For like sure. it's very convenient to to blame Bob Kane, who is a prick. But what about the and I guess like this is a favorite topic of mine. But like the amount of people who are mistreated, it's quite yeah. long. You know, yeah. and and really, frankly, like um, there's a there's a quote by Gardner Fox which you quoted in your book about how National spoke a lot about loyalty, but it was mm-hmm. very one sided. I think mm-hmm. that's still totally the case in corporate and in corporate comics. I still think it's a very one sided you know arrangement. I think so too, and I think that really shows in the way in which DC doesn't honor its legacy creators nearly as much as they should. It's it's crazy, isn't it? And like to me, like they're backed by huge companies, both Marvel and DC, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like what they would pay would be such a pittance compared to what even their flop movies make. You know. Yeah. True. It's That's it's true. it's it's nuts. It's it's a conversation for another day, um, but it is super fascinating. Now, um, I found it very interesting that by 1940, so way back, right at the dawn, DC had an internal editorial code that the villains would survive at the end of the story, and Gardner Fox kind of had to adjust to that um, early <laughs> on. He did. Uh, going back to Batman, his was a Batman that straight up would snap somebody's neck and threaten <laughs> to kill them if they didn't listen. Um, so he did have to kind of adjust. Um, I feel like uh, there was a lot in Zaytara that surprised me as well because you can't have people fainting. You can't, like, no hypodermic really? needles. Like, there was a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily think that, like, the things and it was it was an adjustment <laughs> yeah like because I well one I of think... my favorite little bits was uh the uh editor's note um have fun trying to write a good story now <laughs> <laughs> exactly like challenging him he, he was very much the master of his craft though it seems okay. like he could very much shift with the 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 changing tide you know like he really really did you especially yeah. that during the comics code by the time that that came mm. more widespread and and additional crack Downs. DC didn't get hit as hard with that because they already had that the the in-house rules. Yeah. Um, but Garter Fox shifted more than I think a lot of people because he started doing a lot of those the funny animals and things like that that often don't get mentioned when we're talking about comics. But funny animals was huge in the, at the start of the Silver Age. Exactly. I think it's one of those weird things that like I I reckon like a lot of kids would love it, but then once people mm-hmm. get to like teenagers, oh no, I never liked the funny animals exactly i'm all batman all the time (laughs) Um, as i sit here in my batman shirt don't mind me (laughs) oh oh yeah i mean don't worry i I love my batman um i'm thinking that with um you know how like batman is like closely related to some of the pulp heroes like i think uh, the phantom i think had guns certainly the shadow did so you you could see the early Batman wearing those influences on his yes. sleeves, so to speak. Batman too, I think, could be included among that that group, um, less weaponized. But again, it's that gun as a gadget. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I saw a, a character that um, the Flash. I wanted to pause for a moment here. Can you? Because obviously he created the original Flash, uh, Jay Garrick, with the cool hat. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like that nifty hat. 
Now, can you take us through the creation? Who was the uh, assumed with an artist? Um, he created it. Like, how, how did that come about? Yes. So Harry Lampert was the the one that uh, is given co creator mm-hmm. credits. Um, I have to be careful here because both he and uh, Howard Sherman, co creator, so DC says, uh, uh, co creator of the uh, Doctor Fate. Um, both of those artists give credit solely to Gardner Fox. Really? Um, so with The Flash, Gardner Fox was inspired first by his uh, past in sports. So um, he Gardner Fox was definitely a very sporty kind of guy. Mm. And one of the things that reportedly one of his coaches said was that, you know, it was all about speed. And so he was really thinking through how speed could be its own superpower. Cause this is the first speed stir really like this yeah. is, this is groundbreaking. But before too. Sonic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> just a little bit, but, just a little bit before Sonic. To, to that sort of like practical mm. um, thought process. He also was drawing inspiration from Mercury, so that's where that helm comes from, and oh, the the God the, Mercury, yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, um, okay, that makes also sense. The, the helm ties into the World War One helmets as well, so there's a lot of symbology baked into the way Gardner Fox wanted this character depicted, and that's why the artist feels like Gardner Fox was the the creator of the Flash. Right, yeah, because it's so iconic, and yeah. I mean, I love Jay Garrick, and, and I knew him from. He's, in, he's my favorite Flash. Forever. Oh, he's he's neat. Like, and even to the point where I mean, he, look, I don't religiously watch the Flash TV show, but certainly I've watched enough to see Jay Garrick turned up in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. Does does like in terms of the Flash because he also wrote quite a big chunk of obviously in Justice League he wrote a lot of Barry Allen, but even. In the normal Flash comic, he wrote a fair chunk of Barry Allen, didn't he, as well? He did as well, yes. Yeah, which is cool. Like, he was really kind of integral, and I know in the 90s with Mark Wade, they really brought back Jay Garrick, like, heavily. He was yes. He was often in the comic. Does Gardner Fox's estate get a piece of all that? Like, because he created, you know, Jay Garrick, like, when it's in the TV shows, and I don't know if he's been in the movies, but in the animation, does his estate kind of get a piece of that every time he shows up? Not to my knowledge. Really? Wow, that's bad, isn't it? Um, yeah. That's terrible, frankly, because um, I do know we've had quite I a I mean, few... the, the family gets invited to go to the premieres, mm. um, but I've never heard... Uh, they've, uh, they've certainly never reported and... Mm. Yeah, that, it, that, it, it's a hard question to ask because I, I have a feeling I know what the answer is and I feel like yeah. they would say otherwise, you know? Well, I, I do know we've, you know, we've had quite a few creators on the show and, uh, you know, guys like Chuck Dixon, we've had Roy Thomas, we've had Jerry Conway, we've, you know, some mm. big names and mm-hmm. they, um, when they show up in DC at least, in the TV shows and stuff, they get a payment per yeah. appearance. It's not huge, though. Yeah. Like, it's really not. It's not yeah. like you think. Like, it's kind of like, you know, I, I, I shouldn't say the amount, but it's not a lot. You know what I mean? But yeah. it's per appearance. Um, and there's all these... But what's what, what, what I wanted to dig into here is there's all these qualifiers. So if you created a character... Like, if you take one of Gardner Fox's characters, we'll look at the characters he's created now. Like, okay, we look at one here, Key, okay, who's a villain, I believe. 
Um, if you created a character that's heavily riffing, like the daughter of Key, yeah, they don't mm-hmm. consider that a new mm-hmm. character because it's kind mm-hmm. of derived. But uh, ironically, Gardner Fox is the guy who created a lot of the originals, which is why yeah. I was wondering if his family did see something because if you look at it like a family tree, they derive from the original creation, you know? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I, I sometimes think some of these guys and estates need to hire decent lawyers, you know, um, to, yeah. <laughs> to, nego- well, to negotiate a little bit harder. You know, because no, it, I, I agree. I just I, I think that it would be hard to go up against DC. It would. It We've would. seen that time and time again. Yeah, it would. It would. Um, I remember Chuck Dixon said that the one thing they're scared of is the Supreme Court. You know, they often settle <laughs> on the courtroom steps. Mm-hmm. You know, um, now moving away from uh, my uh, endless uh, fantasy litigation, <laughs> it's very easy to armchair quarterback it. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you, you you're not the one funding what would be a long and expensive you know process. Well, and the the emotional labor of it sure. as well. Like I, I feel like I could see a future where that that happens, but mm. very much when I started writing the book, mm. the family had considered him an unsung hero that people just didn't know who he was and never would. Yeah, well, uh, you know that's definitely changing. Um, now, speaking of some other characters, I didn't realise that he created Martha and Thomas Wayne, who were obviously the parents of Batman. So, okay, this is one of those things that's uh, complicated about the original Batman. I think there's an argument for that, for sure. Right. Um, because the that issue where we have the origin of Batman, uh-huh. the story itself is written by Gardner Fox, but... I see. And again, we I feel like there is room to say that that two-page introduction may or may not have been written by Bill Finger. I got you. So he wrote it kind of almost as like a, a flashback, but you're saying it could have been the spine of it could have been written by Bill Finger as well. Just those two pages. Yeah, um, it, right. It's hard because they. You could argue that Gardner Fox was essentially a ghostwriter for Bill Finger. Bill Finger was a really slow writer, really? and Gardner Fox was known to be able to produce really fast and like he could always meet his deadlines and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and so they brought Gardner Fox on. In fact, he was the first like official writer assigned Batman. Um, and so he came in and wrote a bunch of, of issues and then it gets really complicated because they were published out of order. <laughs> right. Oh, so right. Yeah. A mix of, of, I think there is an argument. I just don't have any evidence to no, say. No, okay. What a, what a mess when it comes to like that. What a, you know, what a, what a, what a complicated mess. And of course, everyone's long dead. So yeah. it makes it yeah. even harder because, yeah. you know, then if people are... Yeah, interesting, though. Like, I mean, it just shows you right at the start. Now, obviously, one thing that when I was reading your um, book is, my God, he had a real work ethic, didn't he? He like, did. He really, really did. Yeah, and it shows. You, you, he wrote from basically the start of comic books well into the 60s, like almost like really late uh, 60s. In the 80s. Yeah, well, that, I was going to say, yes. All the <laughs> way into the 80s, but... My first question is, um, did he write full script? or Because I was trying to work out from your book exactly how he wrote for his artists. He would write full scripts, including descriptions and, and everything. Um, in fact, I was surprised at the amount of detail 
he would put in the backgrounds yeah. of, of certain scripts. Um, I, I didn't see any scripts in the archive that were like, I, I, one of my dream projects would have been to take some of the, the, the scripts and compare them to the actual comics, but I didn't get that opportunity. Um, Cause All I was right. fascinated to see how much the artists were able to include some of the things that Gardner Fox was saying, because you can't do that all the time. You know? Well, yeah. So what you're saying is in his archives, he didn't actually, you didn't, you didn't have a script for say, you know, Justice League 29. No. No, really? I, I'm surprised that yeah. you wouldn't be able to find them for Justice League. I would have thought, you know, yeah. I, I have a feeling that there's more materials out there, to be fully honest. Sure, um, I've but, been know. told of a couple of boxes mm. about, and there's apparently an entire card catalog that's missing. Right. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's, there's more. And if, if I do happen upon a box somebody is willing to share with me, sure. um, I, I will definitely be writing about it. <laughs> well, well, Signal will shine that light for you. Um, uh, now, the artist that – you know who I'm thinking would be a good one? The artist who he, who he worked with on Just League, is it Mike Sabowski? Is that how you pronounce the name? Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I reckon he would be a good one because that's one of the most ones that they reprint a lot, you know, the, that run. True. Yeah. So did you ever reach out to perhaps his family? Um, I'm thinking they may have I something. Not that might be interesting. Well, I'm I thinking an artist would have had to have had a full script to work for, or a script of some sort, you know. Yeah, I don't know if. I mean, who knows? I don't know if they would have been taking them home or whatnot. My understanding is that the DC bullpen was not all that different from the um, Marvel bullpen. Oh, and right. So they were in the office writing there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gardner Fox was unique that he he wrote from home. He was ahead of his time, wasn't he? He was living he was living the the COVID life, the lockdown life, well before. He was. He was. Um, yeah. Now, one thing I noticed in the in the um, book is, and for what it's worth, I did reach out to people that were like in charge of of that kind of stuff, and I was yeah. basically told that. Uh, that all of those records would be with DC, and that I. I I didn't have access to this. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I know, reading your book, he was very respectful of editorial direction. Like, it seemed mm -hmm. like... He seemed like, actually... I don't know what I expected, but he seemed like a pretty sort of, like, amenable guy. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah, and and maybe almost too amenable, but, like, um, like Julie Schwartz, um, we're going to bring him up here, but like he worked closely with him, didn't he, in, in like the plotting and all that kind of stuff? He did. Yeah, and um, it's fascinating. because not one of my favourite people, I will admit. Who is um, one of your favourite people? Julie? Schwartz, Julie Schwartz. Um, oh. I know he did a lot of wonderful things sure. for the comic industry, for the science fiction sure. uh, fandom, uh, like, and, and behind the scenes. He was a good publisher and all of that before he was an editor. Um, like he, he really did a lot, and he definitely deserves the credit for that, but I, a lot of the things that I have learned about him uh -huh. have made me 
take all of that with a grain of salt. And I especially feel the need to yeah. say that because I say so, I talk about him so much in the book and in uh, my next book uh, on uh, Jerry Bales, I'm yeah. going to be talking a lot about him there too, because Julie Schwartz was so instrumental in getting comics fandom up and running. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, well, I, I, I don't know the, I, what I do know is we've had, um, do you know, Elliot S. Magan, the Superman writer? Um, he wrote Superman all through the 70s and 80s and worked very closely with Julie. Mm. Um, so we've had stories, because I love a story, you know. We've, <laughs> we, we've had stories from sort of the end of his career, if you know what I mean, in the last, say, 10 years. But he was involved right at the beginning with Gardener. So yeah. I, I imagine you've got, like, untold stories. Can you give us a little hint? Like, was it business? I think there were some allegations of some... Maybe not sexism is not the right word, but like almost like sexual harassment alleged was alleged. Sexual harassment, groping, I've heard of. Um, right. Just the general, you know, you you wonder why we we didn't have a lot of women in the comic industry because of people like Julia Schwartz. Um, yeah, but, but you, uh, you know who was worse? Mort Weisinger was way worse. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> no, there's a lot of of villains in the comic industry, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, right. I didn't know that much about Julie. I do know Mort Weisinger's. He his. I mean, his was not just restricted to women. He was just out and out prick. You know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. to the point where he would like dangle like dollar bills in front of people and make them jump to get it for their pay and stuff. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and he, like shout at kids. That was one of the funnier things. Um, being assigned him as, as, as an editor was like a way of pushing people out of the company. Like they knew how bad he was and they didn't yeah. care. They used that. I was like, that's so telling. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I do think, um, and I don't know too much about Julie, but I do, I know that in general, I think that these guys were great at getting the trains running on time and that's all they cared about really. Yeah. The, you know, the, yeah. the, from the corporate level. Um, yeah. So interesting. Um, now, we had Roy Thomas on the show recently. It was a real blast. And I know that you were chatting to him um, through when you were writing the book, like when you were yeah. starting up. Yeah. Great guy. Now, um, he, Roy was – I was talking to Roy about, like, working on group books. And he said his whole style – and I'm paraphrasing – of writing group books was based on his reading of Justice Society comics that Gardner Fox wrote, which I think is so telling, you know? Yeah, and you can, you can really see it. Um, there, uh, Roy Thomas, I think, is is one of those people that you could consider a spiritual descendant of Gardner Fox. That you can just really feel how much the love for that Justice Society of America mm. style book. It, it, it's, I mean, it's still the template that you see in yeah. Yeah. in movies and comics today. A hundred percent in the movies. That it that that kind of you know obviously Gardner would often split the group up and um you know yep, yep. what I used to love is everyone had a pair like Wonder Woman would go off with Flash and well that was Justice Society or that was Justice League Justice Society yes. everybody got their own story uh, and it was done by a different artist which is may, which is one of the reasons Justice Society is my favorite I just yeah. feel like it's such a great almost anthology but they're all like connected story wise. Yes. And, like, I just, I really love some of those Golden Age artists, too. Oh, I was yeah. talking about Dr. Fate before. I just love Howard Sherman's work. Um, and and uh, 
Burnley on Starman and uh, there, there's just so much greatness. Um, but the the Justice League where he would pair them up um, two by two essentially, and love then they have it. to figure it out. And it was great because you got to see the way that the the dynamics came out, the way that they worked together. Uh, one of the things that I think Gardner Fox gets somewhat uh, unfairly criticized for is a lack of characterization. But I'm like, but maybe pay a little more attention to the way that they're fighting, the way they're interacting. Like, I feel like yeah. it's there. I really do. <laughs> no, no I, I agree. And I'm going to bring that up in a second, but I, I agree with what you're saying there. Now, um, something I noticed with the the book, um, he really was a patriot, wasn't he? Like the disappointment yeah. of not being able to serve in, in WW2. Um, yeah. You could, the thing is, it's so weird, like, you know, obviously we're dealing with the 40s, you know, and compare it to now, like, you can imagine a lot of people now would feel relieved to not have to go to a world war, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and yet, it's a different time period, like, he was disappointed to, that he had, like, bad eyesight and they, you know, said no. He disappointed. Yeah, uh. like, it's interesting, and it comes through in his writing, though, like, there is a... You know, he is a genuine patriot. I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I just, I just think that that's kind of cool because, like, obviously, times have changed. I think we're all a bit more jaded now. Like, you know, if we're sent off to fight in a war, some people aren't like, oh, where can I sign up? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just interesting. Now, a name that keeps popping up in your book, especially at the start, was Vincent Sullivan. Can you talk, yeah. can you talk us through that? What that relationship was like, and how important was that to his? You know, sort of comic career at the beginning yeah and i think this ties back to uh what you were attempting to bring up with schwartz as well with that like gardner fox uh worked as both editor and writer for his high school and college newspapers and so he had a lot of experience with what those roles bring to the table and he seemed to work especially well with um editors who were willing to allow an idea to go back and forth. They, that's the way that, that they would describe working with Gardner Fox is mm-hmm. that you could throw a ball to him and then he'd figure out what it is and he'd be able to throw it back. And yeah. so it really was this collaborative e- experience. And um, I especially love reading stories about him and Vincent Sullivan because the, Vincent Sullivan and, and him were, were very close. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, he would come over and they would be up fencing all night. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> as, as part of their editing process. And his wife would be like making the coffee. And you, you could just imagine what that home life felt like. And that it's just, it's so cool. And, yeah. and so, like the, the kids grew up knowing him. Like it was very much, he was part of the family in a lot of ways. Um, and it, he would get invited to, to go to their, um, their uh, cabin yeah. uh, in, in, uh, for vacations and, and whatnot, like, and... So they, they were good friends, really, as they well. Were. They yeah. were. Yeah. No, that's cool. How cool is it to, the, the fencing was going on? Can't you just imagine, like, thrust and all this, and then it's like, and then I had an idea for, you know... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, it just feels so alive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's that old school, like, um, almost pulp adventure. Like, they're having fun, mm-hmm. but they're also thinking it's... it's And it's, you know, you know when they say, like, people acting out what the characters would do. That kind of yeah. thing is what I'm imagining. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine him up on the ranch or something, you know, tossing around paper planes or something, predicting how it would be in the air and then, you know, <laughs> writing into a comic book. 
Um, now, you had a chapter, which I thought was fascinating, about Gardner Fox and Wonder Woman, and you put forward some, I think, nice counter-arguments to the allegations he was sexist in his depiction of Wonder Woman during his run on Justice Society. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the Wonder Woman, I mean, obviously, Professor Marston uh, created a character um, and seemed to have a like iron grip on the usage of the character. Yes, um, yes. Now... Like, you know, what was the thing, like, that she was a secretary, apparently, in Justice Society? Is that, is that correct? Like, Yeah, so this is one of those things where, um, I, 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 again, I, I ended up having to take a whole chapter to cover it because it's such a multifaceted sure. piece of history. Um, but at the time, they had this rule where essentially... Justice Society of America was for characters that didn't have a title of their own. Again, if you think of uh, it more yep. of an anthology tryout type yep. series than a, a comic series like Justice League. Um, and so Wonder Woman actually had like two titles. Yeah, out she was going time. strong back in those she, days. She was. She? she was very, very popular. Yeah. And so they, they knew that editorially the right choice was to allow her to continue to be in the comic, but they also couldn't break the rule that they had already established. And so the, the way of, of, you know, skirting that a little was to have her be the secretary so that she could be there in the opening and the closing, (laughs) kind of being in a sort of audience role where where you're like getting to hear the story back from her position. Um, and like question, like, I mean, it just seems so weird that they were so like sticking to their own rule. Like they couldn't just break the rule. <laughs> like like a flash being such a headliner, but whatever, whatever. Yeah. So, but like, yeah, it's interesting. And now like I, I'm, I read just, you know, probably... but, uh, just to, to pick mm. up real fast. The, mm. the big issue I think is that, that Marston didn't want somebody else writing her. Yes. Yeah. You know what? I'm pretty confident that's more the real reason. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, Chris, <laughs> like, hey, yeah. Was like, I'm not doing this. Or no, no, that was Sheldon Mayer, I think. Um, but yeah, like that, it was it was too much of a hassle on editorial side to deal with with Marston. Yeah, having such a clear ethos and purpose to the writing of Wonder Woman, like he really was treating Wonder Woman as a way of presenting a way of of living life. Um, and yeah. his, his ideals didn't come through in the way that he wanted them to in the Gardner Fox story. I, I argue that like maybe they even came through through, through easier or, or more obviously like um, in the Gardner Fox story because really the, the only main difference that I could see was that men were specifically put down in the Marston version. And you see it, you see that kind of overcorrection happen a lot now, like uh, in Disney movies and whatnot. If you've yeah. got a strong princess, then you've got a bumbling father or prince. Sure, or whatever. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, uh, it's I, a kind of cliche, but yeah, that's like. It, it is. I, I think it's a, a lack of credit to the audience. And Gardner Fox really did think that people could grasp those concepts without. Yeah. Sp- yeah, like it's I, no, yeah. Um, Professor Marston, he was really into like the whole um, 
I mean, like women should rule the world and, and men be subservient. Yes. Yeah, and it was yes. all sort that of they to pace. are love leaders that need to ter- teach men how to be subservient because society already teaches women how to be subservient. And that is an important yeah. thing yeah. that we should all know how to do. That's That was Wonder Woman's whole thing. was Mixed in with a bit of bondage. <laughs> <laughs> that was the means, you know. Yeah, like, I'm not yeah, gonna yeah. Make any judgments, you know. Hello. You know, yuck people's yum. Um, and yes. and more than that, like I can't know what he was up to. Like that's not, and that's not any of our business. What I can say is that it functions very well mm. to depict the power dynamics that he was playing with within the comic. Oh, I totally agree. I, you know what, I'm surprised kind of with all these restrictions that he got away with it. You know? I know. That, that, that's the part that I'm – but you know what? I think but the fact he's, he's a professor and stuff. always gets through. That's the way it is because lesbianism sure. is, is hetero male approved. Yeah, no, good point actually. Yeah, if it was guys doing it all, that would yeah. have been like, oh, my yeah, God, like, you know, <laughs> like we need, to, we need to burn the house down. We need to start again. Yeah, you are right. No, it's funny. But but thank God she got a pass because I I do love my yeah. Wonder Woman like me too back me in too. the back especially in, from that era it's just oh, yeah. it's great stuff oh, she's fun Very as well secure. like she's she's quite sassy at times as well like yeah. which is what I like as well like I was reading some Justice League before this show from you know the uh, Gardner Fox period and like she you know she fires back with the comments and stuff and mm-hmm. like when mm-hmm. she kicks people she's like take that honey and she's like. <laughs> Karate chopping Superwoman and stuff like, <laughs> <laughs> like um, yeah. So that's but what 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 I do mean to bring up is, um, if my memory serves, Wonder Woman was certainly an active member in the Justice League in the sixties. Yes. Like, which yes. I think is there. You go. I would say Professor Marston's probably passed away by that point, and yeah. there was a lot more freedom about what they could do with Wonder Woman by then. You know. Yes. yes. So that's great. Now, um, wow, I, I do have a question about, and I, my apologies, I didn't realize that Julie Schwartz was a figure of controversy. Um, but I was that's okay. I, that's why I feel the need to bring it up because we we say a lot of really nice things about him, and I don't sure. want that to overshadow or make him seem like he's this amazing figure. When a lot of of figures we look up to can be very complicated as well. Oh yeah, well you know in terms because he had um, a background in like so let's acknowledge it. You know what I mean? It's there, but like mm-hmm. uh, he had a background in like sci-fi and stuff. A lot of those yeah. really old school sci-fi authors like yeah, that, that are like yeah. very celebrated. Like legends, and, and Lovecraft too. Like he, oh, yeah. he helped uh, Gardner Fox get published in the same magazine as as H.P. Lovecraft, which I'm sure would have been quite the thing, because because Gardner Fox was such a fan of Lovecraft, and I have to say, I I prefer Gardner Fox's version of Lovecraft because it doesn't have the racism. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But what I was going to say is a lot of those really old school guys, they've got like some heavy uh, sort of like what it would have been like Me Too movements back then, you know? Oh yeah. But yeah. but like the funny thing is, it didn't come out until like super recently. Like it's not like it came out in the eighties. It came out like in the last couple of years. I'm talking. I mean, I'm, I I shouldn't name names, but real legends of the game. You know, like the grand old masters of sci-fi and stuff. I feel like yeah. it, for the, maybe the wider population, but I feel like there's a lot of them yeah. that that we knew 
sure, like some sure. of them, their writing really reveals, you know, and then yeah, good point. there good point. is just kind of the, the undercurrent of, of knowledge that gets passed down. Well, exactly. It, if it, if it happened to somebody, you know, for real, they're going to have told someone it's going to be out yeah. there in the, in it's the a subculture. warning, you know, <laughs> yeah. no, it's, it's interesting. Now, um, now, I was going to say this. Do you, don't you think it's kind of funny? If all Gardner Fox had ever done for DC was the Crisis on Earth 1 and Crisis on Earth 2, that would still be a linchpin that DC have monetized and built on ever since, almost ever annually, since. you know? Yep, yep. Like, it's it's nuts because, like, he did so much. But just that is that has propped up DC for decades, you know? Yeah, like, arguably, that's as you said, that's still the, the hill that they're standing on. Well, they're about to do it again with the Flash movie with um yep. with, with a beleaguered Flash star and Ezra Miller. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know what to think about that one. I mean, I'm yeah. gonna have to watch it. Um, oh, I'm gonna watch it. Like it's gonna have Michael Keaton and um. I have a feeling I'm gonna like the Flash TV series version of that better though. They did a really good job with that. <laughs> I, I, no, I I think the Flash TV show like really was good. I think that actor and, and as well the supporting cast did a mm-hmm. really good job. You know, like I think so too. And they really seemed to care about the creators in a way that you don't always see. Like they, that's another one you were talking about getting the guest stars and whatnot. Like yeah. so many guest stars. Like yeah. it's it's really they paid attention to their history. No, it's 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 done by people. I think some of the people who worked on Flash TV show and those DC shows, there were some real genuine comic book people yes. involved, like Mal Guggenheim, to name one, and others. And it comes through. But isn't there a isn't there a movie Ezra Miller in Hawaii? Like what went down, Ezra? You know, could you imagine this? Imagine this. He has the Flash powers, and he's running around Hawaii a muck. <laughs> <laughs> now. Um, can you take us through the construction of that first crossover between the Just League and Just Society? Do you know how much was Gardner, how much was Julie? Was this two guys just completely vibrating in the same frequency in the same moment? Like, do you know, was it a collab? I mean, I think that it was definitely a collaboration, but I think that Gardner Fox had been laying the groundwork in ways that I didn't expect, mm-hmm. such as having... Uh, Merlin's ball show yeah. up earlier. Like, there's all of these tiny little things that I really doubt that that could have been a collaborative process the whole way through. Sure. You know? Um, uh, one thing I know is, um, talking to Elliot S. Macken, Julie a lot worked off covers. And would yeah. go, and he he now I maybe if with Gardner Fox Gardner Fox was such a legend, but he would bring well, Gardner Fox did as well. That was just yeah. kind of the, the DC method. Okay, then he'd bring him into the room, and they would workshop the issue together, kind of thing. And then the writer in Elliot S. Magan's case was very young, so very different to Gardner Fox. Would would basically go home and write it out, but he would often change stuff, and and Julie yes. would not always, you know, yes. it's not and that was. That was very much the way that, that Gardner Fox would do it. He would, um, that would, by the time he was working with Schwartz, he would be coming into town once a week. Right. Um, and they would go and they would hammer things out off the co- of the cover uh, in his office. And then they'd usually go to lunch. Yep. Um, 
that Gardner Fox would almost always pay for. And that was one of the reasons that Julia Schwartz would try to push. I know that's one of those things. I'm like, not the greatest guy. Like you make so much more and I you're going you like, to advantage of somebody that's just nice. I, I, would guess. Have, I would have thought that Julie could have expensed the lunch. It, uh, there's certainly a lot of ways that that could have gone. And yeah. he, he got a kick out of having Gardner Fox pay. Right. And so a bit I, of a power play, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, and he would stall the the writing process out to get the lunch, too. <laughs> right. Like, Jesus. And so really? usually after lunch, the, the story would come together pretty quickly. And then Gardner Fox would... Um, there, I don't know if he always did, but he would usually then write up a, a general outline for approval before heading home and finishing the story. Okay, cool. Well, that's so interesting. I know that they both played bridge. Did they play bridge together? Because I know Julie loved his bridge, and I think Gardner Fox did too, didn't he? He did, yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I cannot imagine a scenario where they did not. Gardner Fox was quite the gamer. Yeah, I love him. He's he's very much like prototypical geek. <laughs> yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, but but also sporty. A bit of an a bit of an all rounder. Like you know, like yeah. academically inclined. Loved his reading. Um, yeah, just have just the complete package. Now, I was going to say, who doesn't love Casino Town, which gets a mention in that crossover? You know. <laughs> They're just like, we're not going to call it Las Vegas. We're going to call it Casino Town. <laughs> I like. I actually think that someone sitting out there who's writing for DC should do a little adventure of the Just League in Casino Town and maybe do a, a flashback to you know the original story. Yeah, like yeah. stuff that was off the page. I, I always felt um, as a kid like the idea of the two teams from the different dimensions being friends and like the way they shake hands and they're chatting almost like it's almost like a, it's a school reunion. It just felt incredibly cool to me, you know? Yeah. No, that's one of my favorite things about the, the Gardner Fox approach to superhero teams versus the more Marvelized Um, in Marvel. So much of the story comes from the drama and the conflict among the team members and the way that they interact with whatever's going on with the justice league and the justice society. Like you can really feel like they're friends that they have lives that they're interacting with each other outside of what's happening in the story. And that, that comes through in their camaraderie and their, their drive to help each other and, and talk through what's going on. Like they're just, they're friends. Uh, Like how, how cool is this image? That they're at their annual soiree, and that's how I do picture it. And you have yeah. like the older Superman talking to the normal Superman, and they're yeah. both just chatting away. And it's like, yeah. it's like, no one's, no, no one thinks this is insane. Everyone's like, yeah, this is just an annual catch up. They just accept it, you know. <laughs> I, I imagine I, yeah. living their lives, I would be, it would be a lot easier to just roll with the punches because totally. you don't know what's coming at you. <laughs> well, exactly. Like that's exactly. Right. You'd be driven insane if you were like worrying about it. Um, I know I definitely get what the draw was to that early 60s audience of the of the crossovers and it got my god it caught on because they did it well into the late 70s I think it was still a thing um, you know then now I had a oh, I also got to say I did like how Gardner threw a breadcrumb to the idea of Earth 3 which is yeah. obviously that like what a good writer he's like yeah and there's yeah. an Earth 3 guys <laughs> talking about there's so many little breadcrumbs throughout yeah. the the whole run through the 60s that makes me think that he he was playing more of an architect than schwartz would want to give credit 
Oh, yeah. No, he definitely was. Like, I mean, my God, like, at the end of the day, I'm confident it would be like a 75-25 split at best to Julie. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I, I like definitely, definitely. Especially if you're spinning so many plates. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, <laughs> there's also the logistical nightmare. You certainly can't be across every story. Otherwise, what would be the point? Um, mm-hmm. Now, I have a question from my co-host, Richard, who's not here. He said... Uh, his main question was, "How did do you, do you know how Gardner Fox felt with the revamping of characters for Silver Age, especially characters like Flash and Hawkman, in which he had a hand in creating in the Golden Age, and you know were then recreated sometimes by him? Was that like was that in his notes? Like was that a challenge for him?" I didn't find any direct comments on that, but given how much his love of sci-fi was present from the the very beginning and the way in which he was able to kind of move um I, I I think not that Green Lantern is his character but I think both Green Lantern and um Hawkman and Adam Strange if you really oh, yeah. look at them there's a lot of of similarities you get a lot of the John Carter from Mars sort of vibes yeah. um a lot of like a it doesn't seem like there was any issues with that because he was still writing a lot of the stuff that he loved. Yeah. And especially with Hawkman, you, he still had so many ties to the past. It might not have been as direct as, Oh, here's a cool artifact. What does this have to do with the story? Um, But I I think that it is a a natural evolution. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. I, I agree. I, and also like every writer, develops and eventually they may decline but like he was in he was in his prime by the time you know by the time the silver age rolled around he was a very experienced guy yeah he was very comfortable with with the whole process um the only time that i ever found him explicitly saying that he did not like what he was writing was when he was writing 60s batman um, he would have much preferred to stay writing Adam Strange, but yeah. he was assigned to Batman. I'm, he had previously done a lot of Batman, and they wanted a uh, female character. Uh-huh. You know, uh, they were inventing Batgirl at the time, and oh, yeah. they they gave that to Gardner Fox to to kick that off because he was so good at at that. Yeah. You know, like he became their go-to person for revamping for for the Silver Age. In fact, uh, he he brought the Riddler into the Silver Age as well, like a lot of, of stuff. Um, That's cool. Did he create the Riddler? He did not create the Riddler, but, but he did bring him into the Silver Age. And so you could right. say that, like, the, the Riddler we know now is is more akin to the Gardner Fox Riddler. Edward Nigma, a great yeah. character, great character. Yeah. And wasn't there um, in your book I'm, the, when the um, movie, not the movie, the the, the TV show Batman sixty six came out, mm-hmm. and DC I think tried to sort of write into the show to make make it super campy in the comics, and he hated that, didn't he? Yes, yes. So it was essentially they they saw the popularity of the TV show and they were like, well, we got to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Gardner Fox did not like the campy writing style at all, and he he considered it some of his worst writing. Yeah, right. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got to sort of, um, what's the word? You, you're given a task. You just have to sort of do it. Like, have to do it, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, it's not, it's not optional, you know? That's the thing. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But one th- going to his Just League, one thing that um, I notice and remember is a lot of his stories have like a sci-fi element, I think, which really fits in with that era, which is the space race yes. to get to the moon. It's well, like, and what you know, he was interested in at the time, you know, he, he did a lot of, of research just for the fun of it. Yeah. Um, and so he was reading a lot of, of scientific articles and whatnot, and he was applying that to his writing. I think it's cool, and and like yeah. it, it, it's like American adventurism. Because when I when yeah. I look at that stuff um, from from that era, I, I think it's so bright, it's so optimistic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'm and I'm I went back and I reread uh, Just Sleep Fifty Seven because you mentioned in your book, which I'm not sure I'd ever read, uh, and it's very down the line. Gardner Fox doing a mainstream civil rights equality for all storytelling. Yeah. Now, to me, reading it, like, obviously, you know, to a modern audience, bits of it may be on the nose, but the message is so good, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's almost a throwback. And it's a message he really believed, too. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's a throwback to the Kennedy era speeches and the peace movement, even, of the early 60s. It's very idealistic, very young at heart. Like, so you feel that that really was his, that was his jam. Like, that's actually what he believed. Yeah. Wow. Like, maybe I'm just too jaded and cynical because I, I read that and I'm like, you know, it feels like I read it and I was like, man, he, he really wasn't pulling punches there. That was really what he thought he's putting on a page in a mainstream comic. And I'm kind of like, it made even someone like me go, wow, you know, almost tearing the eye kind of style. Like, it's, I don't know, there's something at very, you know, what, you know what I mean when I say very young about it, you know? Yeah. And it's, I don't know, we've moved so far from that. Uh, as an audience, and you read that and you think, man, like some of that stuff, they were onto something there, you know? Yeah, no, and I, I, I think that it, it speaks to the responsibility he saw in himself having so many children readers. Yeah. Like he really true. did try to convey an ethical upbringing, um, is way the way that uh, Jerry Bales described it was that that the Justice Society of America was his ethical upbringing. He would read it like the Bible, wow. and Gardner Fox very much knew that there were those in his fan base that did that, and he wanted to do what he could to make the world a better place. You know, I, I was talking to my cousin about that the other day. You, you talk about justice and superheroes and it's easy to forget that when you're talking about Gardner Fox it's not you know justice it's justice with a capital J yeah yeah no it's yeah it's not like Batman on the main streets of Gotham beating the shit out of people yeah like which is how we think of it like justice (laughs) like we must bring justice to the masses the scum he's very opposite like it's like yeah yeah, no that's a I, I you know I often say this like if you were like, you know, I'm hypotheticalizing, but if you were running some sort of a camp or something and it was kind of like I'm picturing back back in school when it's all a bit hippy-dippy, you know, the, <laughs> this would, no, this would fit in though because it's the it message would. is so pure. It's not, it's yeah. not sort of, I don't know, there's not an agenda, you know what I mean? He, he yeah. just goes, here it is, here's what I think, I'm putting in the, we all respect the Justice League. This is well before... You know, we were taught to distrust our superheroes. This was yeah. like I, yeah. I, I like the era. You know what I mean? I it's, you know I think it's cool. Now, um, speaking of Jerry Bales, um, you had a thing here where uh, Gardner Fox was saying, a "Quote is, I know that when I sit down to do a story, I, I feel kind of inspired by the villain. I mean, I try to project his personality into the story if I can." And he mm-hmm. me- you mentioned the Thinker, which I think is a Flash villain. Was his favorite villain? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Um, that I, I love the thinker. It took me a while to figure out why he would be his favorite villain and why he would be a flash villain at all. Mm. And one of the things that, that struck me is that when we're, when we're talking about somebody thinking we're we're talking about them, you know, being two steps ahead. Yes. And when you apply that to a hero, that's all about speed, it all just kind of makes sense. Like he's the opposite of the turtle, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Like there's a really good, I don't know if you've read, um, Mark Wade's Flash, but there's a storyline mm. where Jay Garrick, where the thinker is basically dying of like a, sort of a brain hemorrhage or something. You know, mm-hmm. there's something really bad happened to the thinker, and Jay Garrick actually kind of helps him out. It's kind of a really nice issue. Um, yeah. I, I consider the issue number, but it's it, it's it, look, it's for the Gardner Fox fans out there. I think he would have approved of this story. You know, I think so too, for sure. Yeah. He, he does seem to be one of those. He he wanted his villains to see justice for sure. He but like he like he believed that people were capable of of improving. You especially see that with Solomon Grundy. I still mm. think that he would have made Solomon Grundy a hero eventually. Well, yeah, I mean Solomon Grundy. It's so ironic that that like people today will think of him as a Hulk clone, where he preceded Hulk mm. by decades. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's like he he was around like at the very beginning. But doesn't Sol- look? My knowledge on Solomon Grundy is not great, but doesn't he sort of fluctuate a little bit? Like sometimes he's really bad, and other times he's kind of more sort of jovial, almost. Goofy, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he definitely has some some variation. Um, I I when I was reading him, I was trying to figure out where he was coming up from uh, with his perspective of Solomon and Grundy, and the comparison that I kept trying to make in my mind, just knowing Gardner Fox is more of a Frankenstein's monster sort of vibe, yeah. where it's what the world teaches him and less than than who he is. You know, like Solomon Grundy isn't just some stomping monster. It's every time he shows uh-huh. up, everybody starts punching him. And so it's it's getting him into a place where people are treating him kindly and he learns that he can be kind in return. I want, yeah, I agree with you 100% there. That's a beautiful quote. Now, I wonder if, I mean, Stan's gone, but I wonder if Stan took some um, inspiration. So it's the opposite, the other way around where maybe Stan, I mean, visually they're very similar, but maybe it's a coincidence. You know, who knows? Like, I don't know. But, but like, if you think about it, like Hulk is, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, just how Solomon Grande sort of on the villain side, but sort of like in the middle. Hulk is mm-hmm. on the hero side, but also sort of in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. But I remember Solomon Grande born on a Monday. That's what I always remember. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he's kind of fun. He's cool. Um, yeah. Now, it's common for readers today, <clears throat> and you bring it up in the book, to kind of bemoan the lack of detailed characterization in that era of Just League, for example. Mm-hmm. But I'm mm-hmm. always impressed by what a plot machine Gardner Fox was. Oh, for real. For real. He had plots for days. Things that, that like... I, that was I was really surprised at how much he had like formulated plots. Yeah. Um, like and granted that was totally a thing that was happening. You could buy books of of plots essentially. Yeah. Um, and he had one that he repurposed that was on um, Western plots specifically. But he had such a a formula, and if he knew something worked in a previous story, he was not above finding a way to make that work again. 
and he sort of um, and of course, well, why not when you're writing hundreds of issues? But right? Right? he sort of made his own <laughs> notes in the plot books, didn't he? So he kind of did additions to it. Exactly, exactly. Because with the amount of output he had, he had to have shortcuts and whatnot. And and so that I think was one of the most fun things about the, the work was going through his plot books and his scrapbooks and and just getting a feel for how his brain might have worked. Hundred percent. I know that um, we've had Chuck Dixon on, and Chuck has we've had him on like the show so many times. He, just like Gardner, has done thousands of comics. And he always says, yeah, plot's the hard part. That's why some people don't want to know about it because, you know, that's he, that's where the real work gets done. And, and, like, I just wonder, in my imagination, I think, you know, could you marry up, like, the, the fantastic storylines that he did and, you know, that Gardner did, pumping out all these stories, if you married that up with a slight layer of deeper characterization now. Could you imagine what it oh, would be it'd like? Be like? It would it, be amazing. It would be but amazing. But you don't have yeah. a page count for that anymore. It would have to be in a graphic novel. Oh, 100%. Well, that's fine. You know, like, yeah, I, I, think they're moving, I think they're <laughs> moving away from sort of the floppy single stuff. I think yeah. it's, you know... It's, I, it's a hard sell. My kids don't read floppies because they, they don't feel like they're getting enough out of any of them. I agree. I, I totally agree. I, I buy the, um, you know, the collections... Um, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, usually in hardback, um, yeah, you know, that's or what I do too. yeah, because like you give it to a kid, like they read it in like what three minutes if it's just one of the floppies, and I'm like, yeah. well, what's next? And well, kid, yeah. that's going to be another six, seven bucks, you know. Yeah. <laughs> How's your allowance going? <laughs> um, yeah. Now, so uh, now I did want to mention this when Grant Morrison was writing JLA back in the late '90s, I remember he was very complimentary towards Gardner Fox in interviews. Mm-hmm. And that's probably where I really became aware of the name because he, he would actually say, I'm doing what he was doing then with sort of now, like, but very plot driven, you know? Yeah. Um, now, did you, in speaking to, um, you know, his family, his colleagues, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff, um, did you get a sense of what Gardner thought about the deepening and darkening and comic storytelling in the 70s and even that in popular culture? like in the 70s and the movies and stuff, you know, everything kind of got darker. Um, what was his view? Um, what do you, what, I don't what do you think, think he was ever asked specifically about that, um, but he didn't have a problem with writing darker stories. Yeah. Um, like the, you look at like the the golden age, the the original Ghostwriter and whatnot. There's some pretty deep, dark themes there. Um, and he wrote like some some stuff for for EC horror stories mm. and whatnot. Um, I don't think he would have had too much of a problem with that. But I do think that one of his concerns was that being too temporal, being too focused on what's going on today takes away from the story. Um, And so I think that he doesn't strike me as somebody that would find following trends always a good thing. I mean, look at the way he reacted to having to write a a campy Batman. Like, he he didn't think that 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 was the the right way to write stories. That's I a guess. good point. He wasn't yeah, he exactly like, oh we've got a hit show. Please write Batman in this tone. Yeah. 
No. <laughs> I mean, hey, we are talking about the guy who had Batman, what, shoot, shoot a vampire or something, so maybe he'd yeah. be fine with the dark ending, you know? Yeah, exactly. Now, Something I found super interesting, and I didn't know this, that Gardner Fox created Batgirl and seems to have drawn some inspiration from his sister Kay Fox, who was also a librarian and very independent. Yes, Kay Fox was the big surprise for me. I think she was the coolest. Um, In fact, one of the, the kindest... Most touching, like the for me, like the biggest takeaway from writing the book, yeah. uh, bar none, was his granddaughter telling me that she could hear her aunt's voice in my writing. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and I really did feel like I Kay was was another star that was in that that book. Um, she did a lot, and I think that that Gardner Fox really looked up to her. And I think that there's just so many parallels that, that I couldn't, I couldn't not see the potential for inspiration. No, I think it's, yeah, well, I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Like yeah. if he looks across and he sees his sister or she had a good relationship with, and then she's this librarian and she's like, she was like a director on the library board or whatever she was, yeah, but like you know, it's kind of like wow, she's wing and named after her had the was was like head of the the Cheshire historical community, like and and had so many like cool, interesting. Um, she was a bottle digger. I don't know if you know what that is, but that I don't it's know a, what that is. What is that? So um, bottle diggers. So uh, old glass. Right. can be a hobby unto itself. Um, here on the West Coast, for instance, I would say the biggest, most chased after thing, it's just another collecting, it's another yeah. antique thing, but um, whiskey bottles from San Francisco because they'll sometimes wash up places and whatnot. Oh, right. Uh, but yeah, she she collected old glass and was part of a, a, a hobby club down there around that. Like she was just so active in her yeah. community and was really making her community a better place. No, I think it's great. Like good yeah. for her. Like it's, I'm thinking yeah. of that Kevin Costner movie from the nineties message in a bottle or something. It was called. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe work that into a story gardener. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that is, that is cool. She look. she sounds like a real, um, a driven woman. And when you think of Batgirl and, one of my big friends that um, we have on the show, Stella, she runs uh, back called Oracle. Um, so, so I know she would love to hear about the inspiration for Batgirl, which is why I bring it up, Stella. Um, yeah. We always uh, she oh, she's she's a Batgirl aficionado, you know. Um, very. It's very cool. Now, um, Michael Kellisham had a question. Um, Mr. Fox did the first comic book crossover event, the Search for Zatara, which told. Yeah. One Zatanna story um, spread over multiple titles. Do you have any backstory on that? So this was – was this the mystery story? Like the search – like, like she was searching for a father or something across oh, different yes, things? Oh, yes, she was searching for her father, shows up in Hawkman first – um, and I, I really, really loved the way that they introduced her character because you might not have known who she was right away, but – like the the clear hints mm. um I, my favorite of those hints was the fact that um her the way she was speaking was uh, was also different it was like missing pieces just the same as zaytara would always say things backwards right yes. and so yes. one of those there was all of these like it's uh, like you have to put squish her together to to make the the full thing it, it was such a, a fun clever way of playing with words um and speech 
Um, but and yeah, what, no. What, what era is this? Is this sixties or is this before or? This was in the sixties. Okay, uh, all right. I love Zatanna, the magician, and she speaks back great. backward. You know, like the backward speaking of the spells. She still does that now. Yeah, yeah, she does. <laughs> I love her with a top hat and a fishnets, and like she's she's a great character. I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. And I love her father, too. Zaytara was such an interesting, wacky... Like, one of my favorite stories that I came across of Gardner Foxes that I couldn't include because there really wasn't any reason was Zaytara just having enough of this whole Hitler business and straight <laughs> up, like, just making himself giant, walking over, <laughs> appearing, turning the furniture into attacking... You, so you have Hitler, like, being spanked by his furniture, <laughs> and it's just, it's such wacky goodness. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love it, though. Like, I mean, because let's face it, like, you know, back in the day, like, World War Two, like, no one knows that these yeah. comics are going to last for a million years. Like, yeah. and, and, you know, yeah. you'd have things like Superman goes and picks up Stalin and Hitler and takes him to the court or something, and Zatara's <laughs> spanking Hitler. Well, why not? You know, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but, like, uh, but like, that's an interesting point. Like, that brings up World War Two. You, you know how now people are, like, some people, when they, oh, it's just propaganda. It's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, that had its part in World War Two. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I remember an interview with Ed Brubaker who did a lot of Captain America, okay, and there was some writer, there was a big writer uh, in the 80s who said, oh, Captain America never killed. And Ed was like, you know what, I've seen, like, covers with a machine gun where he's mowing down Japanese soldiers. Mm-hmm. Like, like mm-hmm. it's, like, let's face it, it was a war. You know what I mean? Like, and It was. And othering of the people that you are being asked to gun down makes the gunning down easier. And so it's an unfortunate byproduct exactly. of war that xenophobia comes up. Uh, exactly. And I think that we're yeah. still seeing the, the ramifications of that choice. You know, anti-Asian yeah. hate is still very prevalent oh, in the it's US. Nuts. I'm, I'm by no uh, way condoning it at all, but I am yeah. saying you've got to place it in some context. But yeah. it, yes, exactly. That is the context. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. Now, um, I don't know how we got. Oh, well, it was it was Zatara's fault because he was <laughs> he was spanking Hitler. Look, Hitler deserved to be spanked. I don't care. As far as I'm concerned, like that's fine. Um, agreed. Agreed. There's an interesting quote in your book where Gardner Fox discusses Stan Lee, and he praises Stan, but he mm-hmm. mentions that when Stan couldn't tie a story up, he would push the can down the road till the next month. Whereas Gardner was very much like, I want to get it done. Typically in the mm-hmm. issue, yeah. Mm-hmm. He was generally a one-and-done guy. Um, but reading, I think we've even brought it up in our conversation, he did throw breadcrumbs, you know? He did. He did. But I think there's a difference between breadcrumbs and tying up the story. J- to bring it back to Zaytana, each one of those issues really does stand alone. Okay. It's not until the very end where we've got, like, the, the two-parter with the Justice League where it, the, the whole story comes together. Like, there especially with the Batman book, you wouldn't know that that had anything to do with the Zatanna story. Um, It's completely self-contained. But it has those, those little bits of of breadcrumbs. And I I think that it's interesting that, that Gardner Fox was asked to speak on Stanley at all. It really speaks to that, Mm. that rising of, of Marvel. And I think he handled the question well, because I I think that, that Stanley, 
perhaps is overcredited in similar ways to Schwartz at all. Um, editors are really, for whatever reason, editors tend to get a lot more credit than writers. Writers tend to be seen as disposable within the community. And so I, I always give points to writers who, who advocate for their own skills because they, they deserve that. Oh, 100%. I mean, like, in the quote, he calls Stan a genius. You know, like, yeah. he's, yeah. like, it's a very even-handed answer. Like, it's, yeah. you know, it's almost, like, Stan would often um, almost end on a cliffhanger. You know, like, mm-hmm. even if it was a very manufactured cliffhanger, like, you know, he's like, Spider-Man's like, I'm not going to be Spider-Man. And there's, like, well, a... Well, that's, again, that utilizing of the drama instead of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a different style. It'd yeah. be interesting, to, you could imagine, late 60s, um, the two of them on a panel. And I can imagine them chatting, and they're quite different, but I'm sure that they would find oh, yeah. areas of, you know, to really, to sort of talk and stuff. And, like, yeah. Stan was also a massive salesman, you know? Yes. Like, and that, that 100%, I think that if we are talking about Stanley, his his promotion is what he should be most famous for. I agree. Um, like, I remember <clears throat> when I first got into comics, like, early 80s, <laughs> And Spider-Man. And I was always like, who is this other guy? This whole guy. <laughs> like, I just didn't quite understand. They're like, he created Spider-Man. And I'm like, hmm, but Spider-Man's real. So who is this guy again? Is he his dad? <laughs> In a way, David, yes. <laughs> like, but he was very, by the early 80s, he was super associated, like, when yeah. they were promoting Spider-Man. Yeah, he did a great job. He did a fantastic job. Like, whereas Gardner is a, is a writer who is almost exactly. kind of invisible, you know. Yeah. You know, there's the name, very distinctive name, but you don't get any – the pictures even, there's not that many pictures of him that you see. You certainly don't see him promoting, you know, Zatanna or whoever, like, in the background. Like, it's not – it's a different style of creation, isn't it? It really is. And he didn't, Gardner Fox didn't get his own biographical information in a comic until into the 60s. Mm. Yeah. Now, um, speaking of the 60s, now, the sad part is he stopped receiving work from DC during 1968 when the comic company refused to give health insurance and other benefits to creators. Now, yes. So the yeah. the writers and it got together. It's it's mostly writers. I think they got like one or two artists. Mm. Um, that they, they came together to form a union. They wanted to be able to retire. A lot of them were getting older. They yeah. they cared about you know how were they going to take care of themselves and you know, DC had always treated them as throwaways and that was kind of how it went, unfortunately. Um, you talked about Wessinger. Um, that was what they did to Gardner Fox is he, he said that he, he was a part of that. Like, again, he's an advocate for justice and that would have been a just treatment. Um, and he didn't receive that. Instead, he was no longer allowed to work with Julie Schwartz anymore. And, he slowly was was given less opportunities. The same. That's what they did to all of them. Um, that's why I I personally consider the writers' strike as like the the end of the the Silver Age because they they basically just started anew. At oh, well, that point. I think you're right. Like I, I noticed that in the book because I mean, look, we're not we, you know people are quite different things. But if you think about it, like Julie Schwartz taking over Superman from Mark Wisinger, Wisinger retiring, it all ties into roughly the same year or two. Exactly. You know, exactly. 
And it, it was a changing of the guard. Yeah, and surely some of it was, um, I'm being cynical, like you, we can we can hire younger, cheaper people, you know? Exactly. You know, and exactly. if, you know, and some of these people were great, like a Denny O'Neill comes in, um, oh, it changes yeah. the game. He's a legend, yeah. but we get him when he's young, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. uh, it's sad, and I can't even imagine a world and where I have a conversation with Gardner Fox where I say, we don't want you on Justice League. But someone had to have had that conversation, you know? Yeah. It's nuts. Um, yeah, and we did mention that apparently them saying to him, whatever his flaws, Julie was obviously better to work for than Mort, I would think, you know? Yeah, I mean, Gardner Fox and, and Julie Schwartz clearly had a friendship. I don't know how much Gardner Fox knew about what, what sure. Schwartz up yeah. to. I don't know how much he cared about certain things, specifically sure. about, you know, Swartz taking so much more credit and things like that, because because Gardner Fox was not a, a firebrand. He wasn't he didn't like to rock the boat or anything like yeah. that. It was somebody he had a good working relationship with and then working with with Mort Wessinger was was awful. Um but in fact that's uh you were t- you brought up Roy Thomas earlier. Um he's responsible for for Roy Thomas going to Marvel instead of DC. He worked for him for like a week and he's like, I can't do this. <laughs> wow. And, and you know what? That would have to be pretty bad because when you start yeah. a job and you're young, it takes yeah. a fair bit normally. And a, jo- a dream job. A dream Think about job, that. yeah. Like yeah. getting to work for DC Comics after growing up and having whole friendships and a whole life built because of Justice Society of America. Yeah. And well, you can't. Well, I heard that when Mort Weissinger died, and this is second, this is not second, it's more like fourth, fifth-hand information, but apparently (laughs) at the wake, uh, Julie Schwartz said, there lies Mort Weissinger and lies and lies and lies. Yeah, I heard that one too. Like, whatever his flaws, that's a pretty good line from Julie. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, I've got a question, um, and I don't want to spend too long on it, but like, how was... Gardner doing financially after essentially being let go at the tail in the 60s because I heard that in the 70s he was begging for lunches. Now, is that apocryphal? Because that didn't come through in your book. Did you? Was he struggling or was he okay? I did not see any sign of a struggle. Um, he seems to have made about the same amount of money um, writing novels. He just switched over to writing yeah. novels full-time. Um, and I... More than that, he he didn't come from the same struggling background that a lot of yeah. uh, people in the comic industry at the time. Um, his wife was came from a fairly wealthy family. Um, the Negrinis had big formal dinners every Sunday. Right. Um, and he, more than that, his father um, was fairly wealthy as well. Okay. He was a head engineer of AT&T way back in the day. Um, you talk about, um, electrifying Long Island. Like that was Gardner Fox's father that like right. laid the, the, the groundwork for American electrical ma- uh, mapping at that time. So maybe um, this story that he was begging for lunches, it does. Cause I was like, really? Like, I, yeah, I don't, believe that that was that didn't come through in your book at all like even the personality of the guy like i'm like 
Yeah, okay. I, so I think sometimes we embellish uh, stories to suit our narrative a little and, bit. And embellish based on what we know, and yeah. his story doesn't match the the story that is is often coming from the the comic industry. So it's yeah. an easy mistake to make, I think. Yeah, no, Just no, 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 yeah. people seem to think that he moved to the pulps after writing comics, and I'm like, no, he was writing pulps at the same time and before. Like, there's no. Oh, yeah. He was he was a heavy pop guy. Like he could have had a whole career as a yeah. pop writer. You know. Yeah, he did. Oh, yeah. and also, can I say this? I think pulps and comics. There's a lot of crossover. You know. Oh, so much. Yeah. Now, um, good news. Um, an early supporter of creator rights and the first female president of DC, Jeanette Kahn, who was huge at the company, she was there for what twenty five years, maybe. Mm-hmm. She enacted a policy enabling Gardner to receive residuals when DC yeah. reprinted his works, which is where I first would have read it in the early eighties. Um, I picked up a, a what do you call it? Like a it was a floppy, but it was like bigger than normal, and it had a lot of his old stuff in it, and um, that was where I you know, really became aware of those old Just League stories. And mm. so those reprints, they definitely, I think, helped maintain his fan base, but they also would have brought in some income, yeah? Yes. Um, and, and both. He also, uh, speaking about um, fandoms, uh, when he stopped writing for comics, he did start writing a lot of letters to fanzines. Like he became very active. Like he was, he was calling them and, and doing interviews and That's and things cool. like that. Um, and so I do think that there are more people in the '60s knew his name than maybe even today. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, now, in recent years, I've got all the Just League omnibuses, the hardcovers. And they feature years' worth of his stories. Now, surely, we've brought this up a little bit, reprints of his work, um, I would hope that his estate sees some of that. I would think they would. Again, I have not. Mm. That that part of it isn't as relevant to me, I guess. Yeah, no, Uh, that's fair. That's fair. Well, it's 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 always relevant to me because I'm nosy, basically. (laughs) I guess I I can say that his family seems like they're they're doing okay and good. I'm glad. I I, I'm not super. I I think that he did a good job of instilling the right values Mm. in his family, and they have been able to do well because of that. Um, That's good. That's good. Yeah. The, the idea um, the, the hippie fans came to his door in later years, it's kind of amusing, <laughs> know. you know? know. Especially with, like, the uber-wealthy, you know, high-class high Italian wife. Like, it just it kills me. <laughs> well, his, his wife, uh, she sounds like the, her personality comes through in the book. Like, um, mm-hmm. she seems like she was quite the lady and she had pretty high standards. And can you imagine yeah. a stoned-out hippie just lobbing on the door? <laughs> I know, I know, it kills me. I love like, it. I, I mean, he found it confounding and confusing too, which is adorable. It is like, adorable, yeah. totally fine with writing these letters and whatnot, but the, like <laughs> the the tangibility, I guess, of, of meeting a fan versus writing fans, you know? Mm. Like, it's a different experience, I imagine. Well, have you ever seen, there's a documentary um, on John Lennon where it's a recording of Imagine, and he's obviously mm. recording Imagine, he's like in a big mansion, you know, somewhere in England, and a really like a lost hippie, like a lost soul, comes to him and knocks on the door, and he actually brings the guy in and has like a cup of tea with him, and he's saying, "Look, I just sit down and write the songs. So does Bob Dylan. We could be on the, you know, in the loo kind of thing in the bathroom. Like 
it's not mm-hmm. as deep as what you think kind of thing. Yeah. Like, and he was kind of breaking it down for this this kid, like, don't put us on such a high pedestal that we're not gods. Yeah. I love that. I love yeah. it. I, I think it's a really honest moment, and it's not super – it's not a huge part of the documentary. It's kind of just tucked in there, and I, it always stuck with me. I was like, what a cool guy, John, you know, yeah. like – I like that a lot. Yeah. No, and I think that's part of why Gardner Fox would redirect to like an intellectual discussion of the the work itself. Yeah. You know, wasn't super comfortable with the spotlight is the vibe that I get. Yeah. It's funny that he would say, here's the work desk. And it's like, I don't know what you're expecting, but it's a, uh, it's a, it's a table <laughs> as a typewriter. Uh, <laughs> and my plot book, um, you know, because it's like, this is the nuts and bolts of what I do. Like, it, it you know, yeah. a lot of it's in his head, you know? like Yeah, yes. So um, something I did check out, because I was, I was like, I was, to me, as a, a comic book fan, I wouldn't have known what he did after uh, he left DC. And then I checked um, Red Wolf at Marvel. That was a bit of fun. Oh, yeah. Good old Red Wolf. Like, and, <laughs> and I read it. It's a very competent Western. It fits right alongside the Jonah Hex comics of the same era. Yeah. And the yeah. issue I read, I was struck by how much spirit and sass the female character Red Wolf Rescues has. She, but she's borderline racist. But she's female characters. Well, yeah, there is definitely some <laughs> of that. And and I would say, like, there's also, I think that Gardner Fox falls into that trope of over-idealizing Native Americans to the point sure. where they don't feel like real people. But, you know, again, he grew up, he was born in 1911 in a wealthy family. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he's white, he's straight, like, he, yeah. he really, he's doing pretty good given what he was getting. I think he's doing great. Like, and, and let's be honest, like, how many people have gone down that well with Native Americans? It's a long list, you know? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you a, a good show. I'm going to give you a show tip. Reservation Dogs on Hulu. Oh, I keep hearing about oh, that it's one. It's so I good. It like, it's lighthearted, which I like. And it's mm-hmm. funny. It's got heart, but it's also it's, it's, it's actually funny, but also got some heart. And if you want, like, it's kind of like getting away from that, oh, they're just trackers. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? You know how every Native mm-hmm. American back in the day, especially. Mythology. Even, exactly. Yeah. No, it's. It's really good. Um, but, no, I, I really kind of found that lady funny. She's just – she hates him so much, but he's rescuing her. And, and he makes her go to the, the Native American camp and, like, puts the face paint on her and stuff. And she's just hating it that much. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, yeah. His, his female characters are not bystanders. <laughs> no, they're not. They're, 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 they're sassy. They talk back constantly. Like, and she, But she really does. Like she I think, comes from his wife and his sister. And yeah. their take no nonsense attitude. I, I love it. I love it. Now, love it. Um, Michael Kellisham had another question. He says, Mr. Fox created some of the most iconic characters like The Flash, Satana, and Justice League, but he never had the name recognition like a Stanley or Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this was? And was Mr. Fox ever bitter about his treatment in comics? Um, interesting question. Um, I, I don't know if. Bitter's a hard word. I I would say that his family probably thought that he was bitter. Sure. I would say that his family, on behalf of him, were quite upset with the way he was treated. Sure. Um, and that that goes all the way down the line. Mm. Still, mm. Um, I don't know if he because he not to spoil the end of the book, but mm. he was strongly considering coming back. Yeah. Um, 
and writing a Hawkman story with Tim Truman. Um, and if he truly, and, and granted that it had been years to, to like process and yeah. whatnot, I think he was more hurt by the way that he was pushed out from the writer's strike than the the not getting name recognition. Name recognition yeah. didn't seem like it was very important to him at all, um, especially if you look at his use of pseudonyms and whatnot. None of that would be tracked back to him, yeah. you know, for, for many years. Like, just now people are starting to connect dots on that. Maybe uh, it was a case of, like, look, I mean, God, I'm sure, uh, you know, weeks after getting forced out of DC, you'd be, of course you'd be bitter and angry. Anyone would be. Mm-hmm, but with mm-hmm. the passage of time, and obviously he had a whole other career um, exactly. with the Conan pastiches and stuff, like, he had time to get over it, I'm thinking. Yeah. You know, like, he doesn't and strike he me as a guy who's, like... that his fans were still his fans. Yeah. That, like, the, like his work was beyond that of just how DC saw it. Yeah, and I'm wondering, I don't know, I mean, Paul Levitt's, I could imagine a Paul Levitt's or a Jeanette Khan reaching out to him at some point and saying, Gunner, we've got an issue, do you want to do it kind of thing. It, I, there's a lot uh, of storyline. Actually, line, he, you know? Schwartz was having him secretly-ish mm. um, continue working on Adam Strange after he was pushed out, actually. Well, that's um, good. So that absolutely was happening. And that's, again, one of those signs that I'm like, I don't think that he personally was as upset as other people were on his behalf. Um, yeah. He just doesn't seem like he he was... That kind he, of was, guy. He, he was a people pleaser. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. He was. I, no, I, I hear what you And sadly... That can be taken advantage of at times. Exactly. Especially exactly. in corporate. Especially in corporate. Yeah. You never want to be too nice. I work in corporate. Like, you've always got to have a bit of an edge. I don't feel like he probably had that much of an edge. Like, he, he probably had a probably had a fairly subservient relationship with Julie Schwartz, you know? Yes. That's, that's my feel as well. And I think that that's what others have said about him and, and their relationship as well is mm. that like he just, for, for instance, instance, uh, Vincent Sullivan, that it's why he credits him as not being a successful lawyer is that he just didn't have that, yeah that edge. Yeah. Well, he, maybe not the guy you want working on your defense. If he's like, he's guilty. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, can I get another lawyer? <laughs> yeah, I know. I love that story so much. I hope it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I told you that in confidence. <laughs> I thought it was a Tony Clyde privilege. <laughs> but, he, but see, that's the thing, is his belief in justice transcended what the law could, could offer. Well, I'm glad he wasn't just another lawyer, you know? Yeah. Like, really, too. honestly, like, the world's got enough lawyers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree. Although I am curious, like, because his wife thought he was going to end up a, a judge on the Supreme Court, and I could see him actually being a really good role there. No, definitely, definitely. Very measured guy. Um, yeah. Now, let's briefly touch on the Conan pastiches because I love them. I, I think that they're genius. And I didn't – only a few years ago, I was on Amazon on the Kindle store and I saw Gardner Fox and I saw these pastiches. I was like, this is got – I've got to check this out, you know. And they're really good, like, for what they are, I think. Like the Kothar book and I know in your book you oh, also mentioned yes. the other one. A um, lot of fun, you know. No, I, I love that stuff. But I admit that I am a fan of those sort of potboiler fantasy. Like, I, I grew up on that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to a fan. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and so it is It is. It is a pastiche. I think that's the best way of, of putting it. But I think that there's enough uniqueness in them that they're still fun. Oh, and, yeah. 
at the very least, like they inspired Gary Gygax, like it, uh, to it, like Gardner Fox's work. That's another one of those things. That if you look at the beginning of D and D, if the the idea of an undead wizard that came from Gardner Fox, Gygax really? fan, the the yeah. leeches and stuff. So like, yeah, yeah that's crazy. Yeah. So in the um, he wrote these very late sixties, early seventies. Um, mm-hmm. Were they so obviously Amazon wasn't a thing, so they were like paperbacks in bookstores. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And did they sell well at the time? Do you know? They sold well enough. That's yeah. for for certain. I, I think Cardi might have been the biggest selling. That was definitely the one that I saw the most like fanfare around. Right. That showed up in a lot of newspapers and whatnot. Um, and it's a hardcover. Uh-huh. Um, it, it's the only one that I had in my local library by Gardner Fox. That's which I thought it's great. Like, look, and I will say to listeners, if you enjoy Gardner Fox, you want to see him doing something slightly different to the you know, comics, um, these books, they're, they're on Amazon, Kindle and stuff. Some of yep, them are on Kindle yep. and they're well worth it. Now, yeah, something... I would say my favorite is probably Across the Cosmos. Um, it's a science fiction one, but, oh, it's so clever. And there's so many little bits that we see that are active in, in like, our conversations about environmentalism today and whatnot. It, it, it's just a fascinating snapshot and a really fun story. Yeah, it's great. So now... Something I only became aware of last night, Gardner Fox was contributing to Issues of Dragon, which was the role-playing yeah. magazine. I didn't yeah. know this. Like, my God, what a crossover. I know. I know. Again, you talk about the, the beginnings of D&D. Like, Gardner Fox is right there. That's nuts. <laughs> he even had his own game through TCR. <laughs> well, you know, and what was the game called? Uh, Wizards and Warlocks. Wow. And, you know, we just had... Ed Greenwood, who created the Forgotten Realms um, on the show. And we also had Zeb Cook, who was a massive game designer at um, TSAR. So we do have kind of a D&D audience. Now, that's crazy that he was (laughs) – and he wrote some stories, didn't he? Like some – were they short stories, I imagine, or something in the – Yes, yes. Now, of the far – what was the name of that? Um but like very early issues of Dragon, like yes, yeah. very early issues. Um, and uh, there were several. Uh, they ran for, um, I think they were in like four or five. It wasn't like a lot. No, but it was uh, there. There's one on I retweeted from your Twitter, um, <laughs> which has a a cover which I think is the cover of the Gunner Fox story, and it's like yes. Dragon Four yeah. or something. It's very early. They, they very much knew that, that their people would be interested, that there was that, that overlap. And I love the the old ma- the Dragon Magazine, the, the fan art and whatnot. It feels, because it's just another fanzine in a lot yeah. of ways, yeah. you know. And so it was very up Gardner Fox's alley. Oh, yeah. No, it's early days of, of Dragon and, I, and, I, and great days. Just the fact, and yeah. how did Gardner Fox even know about it? Like, was he just involved in the fan community and, you know, I guess writing the... The, the Kotha novels and stuff, that that's how it would have crossed paths? Um, I, I mean, yes. And also, again, he was a really big gamer. Like, he, yeah. he was very much a part of, of that community. Like, he was buying cutting-edge games to play with his kids and his family, and that's why he wanted to, to, build, to make the, the game himself. It's pretty cool. And I mean, he was going yeah. to like gaming conventions and like he, again, he's, he's a geek's geek. <laughs> I so hope he was, because I always pictured in my mind he was a pipe smoker, like, oh dear boy, but he was a cigar smoker, wasn't he? 
yes, he uh, kind of. They were they were like somewhere between, more like a cigarillo. Really, um, really. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. And, and can you imagine, like, you know, he's pumping away at the typewriter and those and the little cigarillo were dangling out the mm-hmm. mouth, and he would have been working. And his along. iced coffee—that's one of the things that, like, he was very cutting edge. He, he, he was, was drinking iced coffee from the very beginning. These days, you would have found him in a cafe with the laptop, and you know, yeah. <laughs> it's just great. Now, look, last question: um, Gardner Fox uh, told Tim Truman um, that he wanted to do a Hawkman story set on Thangar. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be his kind of last thing. Now, we know Tim Truman went on to do a very well-received Hawkman mini years later. Like, how yeah. far along did they get in the discussions? Because that would have been cool. So they they had been talking a lot, actually. I was surprised by how close they had gotten. They ran into each other at, at a gaming convention, and... Um, Tim Truman had no idea that he was talking to Gardner Fox at first. He sure. just saw the this little man and his, his wife sitting in a hallway by themselves, and he just came over and said hi and then realized who he was talking to, and they started calling each other and writing and letters to each other, and he got... Uh, Gardner Fox to come back and start writing for Eclipse. Mm-hmm. That's Some of his last uh, comics were in Eclipse Comics. Um we were talking about, you know, his, his work going all the way into the 80s with the uh, creator-owned sort of stuff. And I can yes. very much see, because, again, that that he, he believed in, in justice. He should own his, his work. I, I, I totally get why that would bring him back. Sure. Um, and so they were talking a lot about doing a more explicitly John Carter of Mars type Hawkman and we're, we're talking through, like, plot beats and what that kind of a story might look like. Um, they hadn't like ironed anything out too much, sure. which is why Timothy Truman like dedicates it to him. And it's like written with that, that spirit and heart. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's not enough to actually give Gardner Fox credit. No, for. I know what you mean. Like he, he did his own thing, but like it just, yeah. wow. You know, did you have, um, you know, when you're doing your book, did you have, like, correspondence of the two of them? Like, you know, were there letters or was it was pre-email? So, um, I actually talked to Timothy Truman uh, over the phone. Oh, you talked to the source. There yeah. you go. Well, you know, and it, at our, um, at Sigla, one of our biggest heroines is Lois. Uh, you know, and you've got to be Lois out there calling these you people do. up. You have to. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and he's a great artist as well and storyteller, Timothy yeah. Truman by himself. So. Yeah. Well, my God, uh, like, thank you, uh, Jennifer. Now, I do want to ask, um, let's get the name of the book, Forgotten All-Star, A Biography of Gardner Fox. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, now, what are you working on now, Jennifer? Because this was this was a labour of love, frankly, obviously. <laughs> so what are you working on now? What's the follow-up? So I, I would say that I'm still kind of working in that corner. Um, I was very inspired by Jerry Bales when I was writing the book. I kept, every time I'd come across a, a like the, the letters, like first of all, it, it made me like super ship Roy Thomas and Jerry Bales' friendship. Like mm. I really, getting to see their friendship develop mm. through the letters was really, really fun. But every time that Jerry Bales would talk about Gardner Fox, I, I, I just so wholeheartedly agreed. And so it really made me pay attention to him. And 
I still feel very inspired by him. He in his he very much, like I said, saw Gardner Fox as giving him the same ethical underpinning. And so it feels like a, a spiritual sequel yeah. to the Gardner Fox book. It's this is what Gardner Fox put out into the world, and this is what Jerry Bales did with it. And Jerry Bales, um, you were saying in your book, he's super into like the, the fan uh, zine elements yes. and stuff. Is that he right? He is yeah. the father of comic fandom. Wow, that's an interesting book. That's yeah, that, so that, you know that almost could be the title, the father of comic book fandom. I don't know if it's catchy <laughs> enough, but it's pretty cool. Paul and Levitz. It, Paul Levitz was also heavily involved. Did you know that? Yes, yes, yeah. he was. Yeah. Hey, have you ever had a chat? Because Paul Levitz is one guy I'd love to get on Signal. Have you ever tried to reach out and get him? Because I think he's quite hard to get on the record. You know, we have emailed. Yeah. Um, I may or may not have alluded to him earlier in our discussion. <laughs> Cool. No, he's look fantastic. Look, I'll say this right now. Fantastic for DC. Can't do, can't say yes. But I have emailed with him multiple times. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No. Well, look, we wish you all the best. Um, I I I think people have to check this out. I've got a suggestion for you. Um, Mm -hmm. Robert Kaniger. Are you familiar with that name? Yes. Yes. Now, Robert Kaniger wrote a ton of stuff. Quite a prickly guy, apparently. Yeah. But genius. Now, we had Chuck Dixon on, and Chuck Dixon took me into the scene in the late 70s on the couch with Robert Kaniger. And mm-hmm. Robert Kaniger was kind of like working from the couch by this point. He, he was an interesting guy. I'm thinking there's a book there, Jennifer. I, there's a lot of people that yeah. Vincent Sullivan, we mentioned several times, is, is somebody that I really, somebody's got to write a book on him. Yeah. Um, I got to do Jerry Bales first, though. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry Bales. Jerry Bales deserves his deserves his time in the sun. He does. He does. He worked so hard to give so many people credit. He deserves that credit himself. I agree. Now, Jennifer, where can people find you? Um, you know, and obviously, Amazon best place to grab the book. Do you think, or is there somewhere else you'd prefer or to or go? but art books? Um, I, you know, shout out to to indie bookstores. What was, uh, what was the bookstore called? Sorry, I... Bud Art Books. So he he's another one of those people that was very big in the like Bay Area fandom uh-huh. community. He it ties to the first comic shop and all of that kind of stuff. Um, still still at it. Um, wow. you, you know what? When you talk about the Bay Area, I kept thinking of the song "I Left My Heart oh, in San yeah, Francisco." Yeah, I left my heart in San Francisco. Francisco. You, yeah. Tony Bennett, the cable cars. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's just great. It's just a, it's just a whole image. Um, oh, look, and you're on Twitter, aren't you? That's where I found you. Yes, I think I am on Twitter. Um, I there is a Facebook that I sometimes let people. I'm more selective about sure. Facebook. Um, and then I have a blog, um, just Jennifer's comic blog. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say Twitter, as long as it's running, is the best place to get a hold of me, though. Well, that's good to know. Well, Jennifer, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you for doing the book, and thank you for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure on my end, too. 